Hey, what's up, guys? It's Sarah Claudio from If Not Me, Then Who, the podcast. And I really appreciate all the love that I got from the first episode. You guys are awesome. Um, you folks, I should say, are awesome. And uh, I, I think uh, at first I was a little bit nervous just to get it out there and kind of got that one out under my feet. And now, you know, let's start cranking them out. 2020 has hit me just as hard as everyone else. But I am dedicated to doing this because I think it's important. I think it helps me out to just work on my uh, skills and and what I want to do with my career and and who I am as a person. And I mean, we got to show love, right? You know, 2020 is hitting us crazy. There's just way too much going on. We don't know, you know, if we're even going to survive that as a year. I wouldn't be surprised if a meteor come in, you know, hit us all crazy. So let's show love while we can. Let's talk about these issues while we can. And let's get into the nitty gritty so we can understand each other as a society while we can, right? Really excited about my guest today. You know, she's had a crazy career directory. I've uh, spoken with her a few times and you can just tell this person radiates badass, right? And today what we're going to be talking about is a little known thing called imposter syndrome. So I think it's super important and I think that it touches a lot on kind of what's going on in today's society, right? With the pandemic, with COVID-19, lots of uh, unfortunate furloughs and unemployment. People are working on their skills. People, you know, students are still trying to figure out how can they continue to get their education. And there is probably a lot of feeling of self-doubt, of not being the right candidate, not being the right person. Uh, Definitely can see exhaustion from folks, you know, that we're laid off trying to get back into the workforce you know it's uh it's definitely been tough and if you have felt that doubt that fear that you know you can't really give it an exact reason as to why you feel that you're not the right person or you think you're a fraud or you're afraid somebody would expose you as a fraud and you may not deserve this role um hopefully this podcast gives some clarity and it touches on you know kind of what we go through as people of color right full disclaimer i'm not a psychologist i don't have any you know practical experience in these things i'm not trying to give a ted talk yet uh this is more open dialogue so we can just see if you know other people are feeling the same things right and you know if you have questions if you have rebuttals comments feel free to uh reach out on instagram spotify however you can And let's talk about it, right? Let's be open and let's continue to push the envelope on what shouldn't be versus what should be spoken about in today's era. So I'm going to let you actually introduce yourself because I don't want anyone to ever butcher your name. Um, So, you know, I know you sent me a little bit of bio, but I'd love to kind of hear that coming from you, honestly, because I feel like when you were writing it, you were saying it in a voice and a tone. So I'd rather you kind of introduce yourself. Yeah, sure, sure. So um, my name is Teresa. Uh, I am living in Seattle right now. I work in tech. I'm a senior technical product manager. Um, I focus primarily in iOS or Apple-based software development. I am, uh, one thing that I mentioned is I'm very proudly, unapologetically brown Chicana. I was um, born in Mexico. I came to the U.S. when I was three. Uh, we went back for a little bit, and then I came back when I was five, and I've been here since then. Uh, Spanish wasn't my first language. I always kind of grew up, you know, in between those two places. Um, I started my 
career uh, in the front line, actually. So uh, I my very first job was with Radio Shack. Um, company that is now extinct. Yeah, all yeah. the way back. And I always like to say Radio Shack was sort of um, boot camp for managers because it was, you know, they had everything. Like every single product that you can think of, Radio Shack carried it. But I was especially successful with cell phones. Um, the cell phone sales, there was just something about it that I just got really good at it. Uh, shortly after leaving Radio Shack, I went to work for a like premium retailer as a sales associate. And I worked my way up uh, pretty quickly back into management. And I ended up being a senior regional manager. So I was managing uh, 17 stores across Southern California. So I had five in San Diego and uh, how many is that? 11? 16? Well, well, you know, who cares about math? They don't pay me to do math. <laughs> but uh, the rest of them were in uh, in Los Angeles, in the greater Los Angeles area. Uh, I was there for a while and I was getting pretty burnt out. Uh, so I did a slight pivot into a individual contributor role. So I took a, I downgraded essentially as some people would Mm -hmm. look at it. I went from being, you know, a regional manager to being a sales rep for a cell phone store that will remain unnamed. (laughs) Uh, and I focused on finishing school. So I went to Colorado state university. I majored in organizational leadership. Uh, and then my brother, who was actually at the same uh, TPR partner, a mm-hmm. premium retail partner that I was at, uh, he ended up coming to the company I'm now at, uh, but the actual corporate owned entity. And uh, they asked him, like, hey, is your sister as good as you? Is she interested? What's going <laughs> on? You know, what can I say? My parents breed winners. Uh, so my brother, you know, really connected me with the right folks. And I came back on board. I came to the parent company of the retailer that I used to be a regional manager for. And again, a lot of that is uh, explaining all that to your parents. You know, I'm sure it's very, you know, small in small sentences, right? You're just like, Hey, I do this thing. This is it. Right. Uh, Cause I don't really think like, at least, you know, my perspective, Latino parents are just like, Oh, she has a job. You know, she's Mm -hmm. going to school. That's all. That's all we care about. Right. They don't necessarily sometimes understand uh, all the struggles that you're going through and everything like that. Um, one thing that I did want to ask you is you started off, you know, introducing yourself. Um, you're obviously a woman and you're in technology. Uh, I'm really curious, kind of on a side question, uh, what type of reactions do you get when you tell people that? You know, when you're first meeting someone for the first time and you're like, hey, I work in technology. Yeah, uh, that's actually a really like badge of honor for me. Uh, I love that I am in a space that is not only traditionally male dominated, but very heteronormative, white, status quo type of space. Uh, It's surprising to people. Uh, When I first started working with some of my peers, uh, I was just sort of this person that was coming from the front line and I was real excited, stars in my eyes. And it took some time to shake that a little bit. And I really had to convince folks that I knew what I was doing and I'm here because I, I earned it. Uh, and it kind of sparked something in you where you almost downplay what you are. Right. So initially mm-hmm. to your point, um, I've been doing this role now for almost three years, I would say. And maybe in the last three months or so, have I really been able to explain to my parents what it is that I do? Mm-hmm. 
it was just like, oh, yeah, we think she does something with applications or something, you know, like the stuff on your phone. So it, the moment uh, where I have the ability to talk about what I do, I have to tailor it to who I'm with, right? Because I, my family is, we're all immigrants. We all came, mm-hmm. you know, from Mexico. My cousins are first generation. So I'm really one of the first that's stepping outside of our comfort zone and some of the spaces that people like us tend to fill. That's you know? huge. That, that, that's really huge. Um, obviously, there's been an uptick in Latinos, you know, the Latinx population uh, just kind of branching out and, you know, starting their own businesses, kind of growing out of that mold of, you know, the traditional stereotypical person that cuts your grass or a person that works at, you know, as a dishwasher for whatever reason, those type of things. I think that um, when we come to this country, when our parents and their parents have come, hard labor was really the indication of, all right, you're going somewhere in life and and kind of being able to branch out from that and and breaking the mold, as you said, and jumping into places that aren't, um, and they are male dominated and aren't aren't as diverse. I, I think it speaks volumes. Do you ever, or have you ever, you know, in, in this journey that you're going through, uh, have you ever gotten that aggressive Latina type of, you know, oh, well, you're, you're doing too much or you're, you know, you're coming off a certain way when it's really, they don't understand your culture or your passion. Uh, I'm, I'm sure lots of times uh, people have told you to kind of redirect and say you're passionate, you know, when you're speaking a little bit, you know, even though we speak English and we speak Spanish, I feel like the speed of, of speaking Spanish to comes out when we're in English, right? Yeah. When you're angry, when you're frustrated, and you're happy, it's just like, right? Um, I just kind of want to hear more about your experiences with that. Has that ever happened to you? So many times. Uh, I really dislike the spicy Latina stereotype, right? <laughs> because I am, I mean, I am a little spicy. It's fine. But I don't like other people letting me know that I am because it's not that I'm spicy because I'm Latina, right? Or it's not that I'm spicy because I'm, you know, uh, brown or because I wear hoop earrings. No, I am confident. I have a voice and I know how to advocate for myself. And I think it's my duty to be able to advocate for others. And a lot of times that sort of puts a target on your back, right? And, you know, throughout my whole career, um, I've always found myself in spaces that are traditionally male dominated as a regional manager, as a district manager, as a store manager, even. Uh, There was one uh, district that I was in that I was the only female store manager for almost a year. Wow. Just me. So not only do you have like that target on your back of like, what is she doing? Why is, you know, why is her performance always here? Because I I have a chip on my shoulder, right? I have things that I need to prove. But one thing that I found is that I would get feedback from my counterpart that really was requiring me to tone myself down and to wash myself out a little bit and not to show that passion because my passion or my directness uh, it was construed as aggression right or being too aggressive even though one of the qualities that is revered in male leaders is bluntness and directness and being able to deliver feedback candidly and effectively that was something that I was very good at but because I was a female and it wasn't a quality that was perceived to be aligned with somebody like me It was always like, you're too aggressive. You're too blunt. And I took it, Eric, for a really long time in my career. I just took it and I was like, okay, how can I 
tailor my message? How can I make it more palatable, right? And I am thankful that I got some of that feedback because it prepared me for the role that I'm in now, which is I'm essentially storytelling. I take this idea, I, th- I take something intangible and I present it in a way that different people from different backgrounds can understand it, can buy into it, can give me money, time, and resources to go out and build it and get it out the door. Do you think that um, your culture and your background helps you with that? I think it definitely helps me with that. And I think what prepared me for that is that I, and you might have had a similar experience coming from a Latino background, but I was six or seven years old and I spoke English and my parents didn't, right? So what do we do? We're the advocates right? We make sure our parents are not being taken advantage of. We're translating letters that they get that we probably have no business reading, but we need to make sure that we know what's in there so that we can explain it to our parents. I think, you know, we we came out as like executive assistants out of the womb. Um, (laughs) I I, I, I totally resonate with that. uh, Just because, you know, my mom, you know, didn't become a citizen until I think like 2008. Uh, it, it took a really long time. And I, I was, you know, it was me. My brother speaks Spanish. Uh, but as the baby of the family, you know, I was with her a lot more growing up. And I had to translate everything. I was translating citizenship documents. You know, at times, you know, I was probably what, 12, 13 years old going over US presidents while she was getting, you know, studying for her citizenship. And I've, I used to think it was dumb. I was like, Mom, why do you care about this? Why do you need to know this? And it's not until now that I'm older and obviously given today's political climate, um, aka the BS, you know, mm-hmm. I, I start to understand a lot what that struggle and what that strength is like. And um, I, I, we did it all. We do it all for our families. And it, it's just so important. It's something that really doesn't translate to a resume or a skill. Right. Because you can put bilingual, you can say I speak X amount of languages, but being able to take those experiences and go to a hiring manager and say, you don't even know, you don't want to know all the things that I had to do. You know, I was helping my mom file Social Security. I had to go with her to the office. And I, I would remember when these officials would look at me and explain to me as a child and be like, I wonder if he's explaining this right. So I, I was dealing with that as a young child. Yeah. You know, and they, we they, are. they don't believe us. Yeah. You know, they don't believe us because they don't understand. And it, that's presented its own challenges for me, uh, particularly, you know, it's it's hard. It's hard to do that. But I think that's what helps being bilingual, you know, being of Latino culture. It kind of helps add that little bit of spice that some companies need, you know, as much as uh, it can come off as aggressive and it can come off as doing too much. Uh, I, I think that's what's really important about working for a company that accepts you for yourself, right? Because if it's a problem, if everyone is kind of acting the same way, you can guarantee that that company, whatever initiatives they have, they're not going to be that successful. That's not how you push innovation. That's not how you change the world or in whatever scale that you want to. You need to have those different spices to put flavor into the meal, Right. Yeah, absolutely. So me and my friend, we actually have this joke being up in in headquarters and we call ourselves, you know, like the sazon, right? Because (laughs) I come up here and I add that little sazon to whatever I'm doing, whatever I'm working on. I make sure that 
it is very clear that I was involved in it, that I leave my mark, that I make an impact. I take ownership of that because, you know, to your point, we grew up much faster than we probably should have because we were learning how to navigate the United States at the same time our parents were. And I don't think I understood how difficult it was until I left Lincoln Heights, which is a neighborhood in East LA. Uh, and I moved to Seattle, Washington, which is a very white, rich, privileged state. And just the amount of culture shock and Mind you, I'm educated. I speak the language. I have a light sometimes, you know, accent that comes out from Spanish being my first language. But for the most part, I think I communicate fairly well. And it was, I still struggled. I struggled learning how to navigate corporate America. I struggled learning how to navigate the world of academia, right? Because we don't have that generational knowledge. We're experiencing it firsthand. Yeah, totally. Um, I want to kind of pivot and, and touch on something that you were talking about, you know, obviously talking about the spiciness. Um, I think that could also be interpreted by some people as, as a microaggression, right? You know, I'm sure you've had coworkers where they're just like, oh, Teresa, you're spicy, you know, and, and they don't necessarily mean it in the, oh, you're adding your, you know, your flavor to it. They kind of mean it in a, in a different way, right? Um, so I'd love to hear a little bit more about your experiences of, you know, those little kind of ticks that you hear uh, here and there, and you're kind of wondering, whoa, what, what do you mean by that? And do you actually, you know, do you speak out about it? Because um, that's something that me, through my career and through my journey, I've, I used to be very shy. I didn't like, you know, obviously we're grown, we're uh, taught not to speak back, right? And I think that goes for a lot of families and, and people of color. We're, we're raised not to speak back. We shouldn't be, you know, talking to certain people, keep our thoughts to ourselves, keep everything kind of tight and nitty gritty. But as I've gotten older, it's, you know, I feel the need to say, what exactly did you mean by that? Can you clarify? I didn't appreciate what you said. Let me explain to you why. Yeah. Uh, yes. A hundred percent to everything <laughs> you just said. Uh, the, those little microaggressions don't feel so little when they happen to you on a daily basis, multiple times a day. And when I first got there, I did go through those moments where I, you know, I was in an elevator and someone's like, hey, you're new. Where are you coming from? Oh, you must know where all the good Mexican food is, right? Or, hey, um, I had one in an elevator once where somebody said, oh, it's really bold of you to wear ripped jeans, right? Because I was wearing some like distressed jeans. And mind you, we're in Seattle business office casual, like, and the person that said this to me was wearing like above the knee board shorts. And it was just in that moment where I was like the audacity of, you know, this person. And a, a lot of those like kind of started like stepping up to the point that I did start pushing back because there's only so many times that you can dismiss that voice within yourself that makes you question, am I tripping? Am I crazy? Like, did they mean it? And you can either continue to ask yourself, what did they mean by that? Or you can ask that person, what would you mean? That's one of my favorite go-to, like, what did you mean by that? I didn't understand, you know, what you said. Can you explain further? And I, the petty side of me gets real joy in seeing people squirm and realize that they're like walking into a landmine and, you know, hey, maybe I shouldn't tell this 30 year old 
Hispanic woman that it's impressive that she doesn't have children because, you know, brown people. Do you think that it's, um, (laughs) that's terrible, first of all. Um, Second of all, do you think that it's a lack of education, like an ignorance piece or because, you know, I can't, I'm not a woman, so it's hard for me to kind of jump into that perspective. But I would think that when those microaggressions happen, you kind of go through your mind or are they saying this because I'm a woman? Are they saying this because I'm brown? Are they saying this because I'm tall? Are they saying this because they think I may not belong here? You know, like how how do you kind of deduce where that's coming from? What do you usually think is happening there? At first, I used to cycle through all of those. Um, and then I went through this moment where I was like, no, they're not saying it because I'm brown. They're saying it because they're an asshole. And I started writing. I'm, I don't know if we can cuss. Nope, that's fine. That's okay. okay. <laughs> um you know, and I, and I started sort of projecting a lot of that. And I went through this moment where I was very angry that I had to go through this because I was learning how to navigate corporate America. There already isn't a lot of people that look like me, right? I think in my entire department, there is one other Latina woman that I know of in a department of over 300 people. Wow. So... that's already like very isolating right and then you start to think like okay how am what am i going to do am i going to water myself down and make myself more palatable and let folks call me teresa and add an h in my name or am i going to double down and let them know that no it's teresa and you can figure out how to pronounce it let me walk you through it right and it it really just started with me standing on my own two on my own you know my own two feet and pushing back on some of those instances and also realizing that maybe a lot of these folks live their life in a way that they don't meet a lot of people like me so they don't always know that it's offensive so I've learned to take it as a teaching moment and I will try to express why a comment could be offensive why it's not the right thing to do or ask or say and draw that boundary and let them know why, you know, it's not acceptable. I recently had someone that I consider a friend ask about immigration status, my immigration status, that of friends. And it was a perfectly innocent question. I don't think she even thought twice about it, right? And I said, I'll let you know, and I'll answer it because I'm your friend and I'm cool with you, but I want you to know that this isn't the type of question that is acceptable to ask to an immigrant person because it's not just our secret to tell, right? Many times when you're in an immigrant family, you're in mixed status families, right? So that means that some folks may be documented, others are citizens, others are undocumented. So you don't know by exposing your status if there are any other effects that can come to other people, right? So I answered her question, but I used it as a teaching moment and she came back and she's like, you know, thanks for that. Like, I didn't realize that that was an offensive thing to ask. Yeah, thanks for that. Um, I've definitely gone through some similar things. And I think that, you know, when when we talk about being an ally, what happens sometimes is, you know, uh, take the Black Lives Matter movement, for example, Um, you know, for people that aren't of color that haven't really experienced any type of racism in general, to the degree of what's going on and what's been going on over and over and over and over again. You know, uh, they see that they say, oh, I want to be an ally. Let me find the first black person I know. You know, oh, I read an article about immigration. Hmm. Eric is Latino. 
uh, I don't know if he's Puerto Rican, Dominican, whatever, but he must know about immigration. Let me ask him his thoughts. And I think that, you know, th- there's an ignorance there where they try to, to show that they're an ally by bringing up the conversation versus, you know, a million other ways to kind of show that they're there for you without having to look you in the eye and say, hey, I saw this about brown people in the news. I want you to know that I saw it. And I want to know what you think so I can react and make you feel better about what I think. You know, I, I think that's a huge gap that we're dealing with right now. And, and I can only imagine what that's been like for you um, as an immigrant, you know, as one of the only Latinas, as one of the only Latinx people. You know, there's not that many probably where you work, you know, so I can only imagine how difficult that, that you know, how tiring and exhausting it is to have to have those conversations. Yeah, it's exhausting because we're in a very unique moment in time where we're trying to erase the tabooness that is associated with having conversations about race and particularly in the workplace, right? And I think initially with the Black Lives Matter movement, I did hop on the phone with my director and my senior director. And I said, why haven't you taken a stance? Why haven't you spoken out? Right. And they said, we didn't know if that was the right thing to do. And I said, it is, and we need to do it. And we need to have this conversation. And they said, okay, we are going to set something up and, you know, so-and-so is going to have these, you know, conversations. And I said, Hey, I'm going to offer you some advice. The folks that you're proposing to have this conversation are all rich white people. Maybe you shouldn't be taking over this platform to let us know your thoughts, right? Because what the trend that I saw happening is that a lot of privileged people, folks that are not, and again, the Black Lives Matter movement, it is centered around Black lives. Those are the the lives that need help now. But brown folks are very much impacted uh, at the hands of the justice system, ICE, customs, border enforcement, the concentration camps, like the judicial system is not set up to help reform or support black and brown lives. But a lot of folks, I think, still took it as an opportunity to signal where they stood. And it turned into an appeasement of white guilt. Right. And I was very frustrated with the we can't believe this is happening. It's 2020. Like, really? Because there are babies in cages right now. So I'm not going to accept that. Still, still in cages and in still missing, moment. you know, and, and they still haven't arrested these officers, you know. So it's 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 frustrating uh, being an ally, being a brown person, being you know a person of color. Uh, there's so many different ways that our backgrounds, you know, affect us and influence us. Um, and I'll just share a quick story. You know, uh, I'm from Philadelphia. I'm from the East Coast. And anytime I say that to somebody out here in Seattle, they're like, oh, well, you must have had it rough or you must have had a tough life. And yeah, I did have it rough. I did have a tough life, but that's not for you to tell me. Um, and I'll share a little bit of a story. There was an issue uh, one time I was working in a corporate setting at the time. Um, there was an issue with my paycheck. What I was supposed to get paid, I did not get paid. And a couple of us were affected. So we got together as a group. um, And obviously, we're outnumbered as far as diversity in in this little group that we're talking about. And, you know, I'm kind of, I'm upset because, you know, I have a daughter. I have a family that I need to provide for. You know, I need to be able to pay for the expensive (laughs) daycare that's out here, which is outrageous. But that's the topic for another day. 
But uh, I was expressing my frustration, you know, like, this is not cool. I don't know if I can wait. I have bills. And this person that uh, was white came up and said, well, don't you have that in your savings? You should be prepared. You know, I can lend it to you if you need it. Just in in that tone, it's like, hey, if you need it, I can lend it to you. And in person, I had to really compose myself because I went through that list that I was talking about. I don't know if they're saying this because they think I don't have money. I don't know if they're saying this because they see me as a person of color and that's why they think I don't have money. Or is it the way that I speak? Is it because I have a beard and I'm not clean shaven and I like to wear t-shirts to work? You know, there's so many different things that went through my mind where what came out of my mouth was, no, it's okay, but thank you. And uh, that's just, you know, it's something that we deal with every day on a socioeconomic level. It's it's just very difficult. And I think that kind of also alludes to, you know, what you and I were originally speaking about, which is talking about imposter syndrome. Right. And uh, what I want to do really quickly is I wrote down the definition from Webster's Dictionary, uh, which what I think is crazy is when I was looking this up, um, I wanted to go to a pretty good resource. So I went to Webster's. This was added in April of 2020. And that was crazy to me because uh, I'm sure, you know, most of the country was shut down at that time. But think of all the times that people, that folks have gone through this experience or this phenomenon, as they call it. They didn't have a way to explain it. And, you know, as Latinos, we don't go to therapists. Right. We don't really talk to our parents about these. You know, if we're seen as emotional, you know, as a, as a man or as a girl, if you're seen as being emotional, you're you're doing too much. You know, they'll give you a little slap on the wrist, hit you with a chancla or a broom and it's like go cook dinner or, you know, go take out the chai, go do something to get get rid of that that thing in your head or, you know, they turn to your faith or anything like that. And I just when I see this, I'm like, Westeros has been around for how, how long? You know, they have definitions for every other word. And just now they're adding this in. It, it kind of blew my mind. But their definition is the belief that one's successes are products of luck or fraud rather than skill. And I want you to take a minute and kind of tell me how that resonates with you um, and how that would impact you or how has that impacted you? I, it's really interesting that you bring this up because I just a couple of days ago was having a conversation with a friend of mine who we came out uh, through this development program for high performing frontline people and they bring them up to headquarters and, you know, we add our stuff on, like I say, and some of us secure uh, full-time roles and we make the move permanent and others don't. And it didn't start to hit me that me getting a permanent job offer, me getting what I call a big kid job, right? Making over triple digits a year, like the kind of job that lifts you out of poverty and allows you to build generational wealth. Getting a job like that was not a strike of luck and good fortune when I started seeing how many folks came after me and they struggled to land a role. And it's not that they're not as qualified or they didn't have the same skill set or abilities, but I did start to see that there were certain things that I was willing to do that other folks weren't 
right? Like I was willing to take a pay cut for the first year to step into this role. I was willing to work long hours and weekends off the clock, whatever I had to do, because I needed to prove that I deserve to be there, right? And it wasn't until a year in my role that I hear myself saying some of these technical terms and, you know, talking about different layers and phases of the product development lifecycle and software development in general that I'm like, oh, shit, I kind of know what I'm doing. Like, (laughs) you know, and it was a really easy transition for me. And I think that it took me seeing other folks try to do what I did and not be able to that really made me start to have some confidence in myself and my skill set and my abilities and not say, okay, somebody tapped me on my shoulder and they liked me. So they gave me an opportunity. And now I have to work 200% harder than my peers to prove that I deserve it. Wow. Yeah, it's tough. And I I think that affects, this affects a lot of people because, um, you know, it's, it's just how we're raised. Um, and on the flip side, you know, take, for example, scholarships. I've heard plenty of times, well, you don't actually deserve to be here. You got here because of a scholarship or they needed to meet a number. And I hate hearing that. I hate hearing that someone sees us as a number where they don't see it as we needed to add flavor. We needed to add innovation. We needed to bring something new that we don't have to the table. You know, and, and when I think about this, I think about, you know, like having a, a family dinner and inviting your friends, you know, having a Thanksgiving dinner, right? What would happen if everyone brought the same dish to Thanksgiving? Everybody's eating turkey. <laughs> right. Dry ass <laughs> turkey, you know, but everybody's like doing the same thing. They don't have any expectations of anything else. They're just like, okay, this is what it is, you know, and, and you don't get anything out of that. You don't get any happiness. You don't feel great you know you're all just eating the same dry ass turkey at the table and it doesn't change so you know when i hear this and and i hear people talking about it as a number or you didn't get this opportunity because of being great that's kind of that's systemic racism honestly that we run into you know um and i'll share another story at a certain corporation that you know i had some experiences at uh obviously it got around that i spoke spanish And uh, whether the company was trying to save some money, whether they didn't have the resources necessary, they wanted to tap on me for some Spanish resources. And this gentleman who was not Latino comes up to me and says, hey, I hear you speak Spanish. And I was like, well, yeah, I do. You know, how can I help you? Because I got I got nervous. I was like, oh, my God, what do they need? You know, this might be big. I could be, you know, the fate, the next, you know, whatever. You know, I got this. Let me take it, you know, every opportunity as it comes. And he's like, yeah, you know, we, we need someone to help with a Spanish voiceover. So um, can, can I actually hear you speak Spanish? And, and I said, what? what? <laughs> he's like, I, I just want to hear how you sound in Spanish. And I did knew that, this person. Did that but, person speak Spanish? No, not at all. Not at all. So I was really confused because we were in an office setting. And as you know, everyone's kind of click clacking on their keyboards. It's quiet. And this person's like, you know, standing in front of me. Well, can you speak Spanish? So as soon as I said something, everyone kind of turns around like, oh, my God, that, that person speaks Spanish. But no one had any idea what I was saying. And, and I, I felt very uncomfortable because why do I have to prove to you that I'm telling you I know my language? 
in a corporate setting? What reason do I have to lie? You know, what what is it my appearance that's doubting you? You know, is it the way that I speak? What What's giving you the indication that I am not equipped to be where I'm supposed to be? And I went home that day and I really sat there and I, I never told anyone, you know, this part. I went home that day and I sat there. I was like, do I speak Spanish? Do you know, does it, is it clear? Does it sound OK? You know, what exactly? You know, why would someone think that? And I looked in the mirror for a few minutes and, and I, I really thought, how can I make myself look more Hispanic? And I knew that was the wrong thinking, but I sat there and, and I really thought about why are people seeing me as I am? Yeah, I think, was this person white? Uh, no, oh, they were not white. Interesting. Yeah. I wonder what made that person feel qualified to judge you on your Spanish if they didn't speak it. Like what were the indicators that they were looking for that would prove that yes or no, you weren't. I had a very similar experience in a corporate setting, by the way. So I was in a meeting, okay? And this was a full-on like meeting. We were discussing, uh, you know, what work is coming and it was a professional setting. And I don't know if you've seen, but you know, Mexican culture has like these really beautiful shirts that are embroidered and they have flowers and kind of like Frida Kahlo type mm -hmm. of, you know, yeah. uh, vibe. So I was wearing that shirt and it's actually from the Pueblo I was born in, in Mexico. And uh, this lady, she says, oh, Teresa, I just think your shirt is, you know, just so beautiful. Like, where did you get it? And I was going to take it as an opportunity to highlight my culture, you know, and I was like, oh, my, thank you so much. I, uh, this shirt is actually from Mexico. And I was, as I was about to jump into it, this white guy, who was the only person standing in the meeting room, by the way, he says to me, I have a funny story about when I went to Mexico. And, you know, you have those moments where you're like, am I going to wild out? Am I going to keep my job? Am I going to see where this goes? You know, where you really like question what, what is my, like, what is my dignity worth? You know, mm -hmm. considering that I knew that I'm in an office setting, I knew that I'm in a meeting. I knew that I'm the only brown person. And actually, no, there was another, there was two other people of color, but then he says, I just kind of like looked at him and I was, you know, I didn't say anything. And I guess he took that as permission to continue. And he goes, I went to Mexico with my niece and my niece speaks real Mexican. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. My niece speaks real Mexican. So it was really easy for us to get around. And we were in a taxi cab and I was like, I'm not going to do this. So I'm like, oh, I would love to hear more about your story. But just so you know, Mexican isn't a language, it's a nationality, it's a heritage, it's a culture, but it's not a language. And he said, yes, it is. And I'm like, no, no, it's, it's not. He was like, yes, it is. There are different areas of Mexico that speak different versions. And this one spoke Mexican. I said, oh, I almost said his name. I said, hey, so-and-so. What you're referring to is a dialect or a variation of the language, but we speak Spanish. We don't speak Mexican because Mexico 
is a country, not a language. And then he goes, no, it is. And I said, trust me, it's not. I, I would know. I think I'm the expert on this one. It, Mexico Did he ask is you to not pull out your Mexican card for proof? He might as well have, honestly. And just, you know, I didn't have it that day. Of all the days <laughs> to not carry my immigrant card, that is the day I left it at home. And, you know, you would think that he would stop. Like, anybody could see that I was getting upset. I was visibly, like, flustered that someone had the audacity to tell me that Mexico was the language. So then uh, he says, no, it is. And I said, no, it's not. You're speaking Spanish. The language is Spanish. And I gave him a history about Hispanic and Latino. And then he says at the end, he's like, what's the difference? And I was like, um, so I, you know, went through it again. And then he goes, no, that's like me saying that I speak Southern when I'm speaking English, but I'm speaking Southern because it's its own like language. And I said, no, you're not. You are speaking English. You're not speaking Southern. Southern isn't a language. And he says again, what's the difference? I said, the difference is you're speaking Southern with an accent. He's like, I'm not understanding. And I said, the difference is that you don't get persecuted for speaking English. People who speak Spanish do. They end up in immigration camps. They are persecuted. When somebody sees me, they assume that I speak Spanish and they immediately assume foreigner. They immediately assume Mexican, even if I'm not Mexican, right? We're all just kind of lumped together, although I am. And then he hits me with the, well, you know, I'm Native American. I'm half Native American. <laughs> yeah. And that really oh like God. threw me off. And I was like, are you really? And he goes, yeah, with like an attitude. And I was like, it doesn't matter. I'm like, you're missing the point. I would just let you know that I'm the expert on this. I'm telling you that it's not. And this is not, you know, acceptable. And he's like, well, I'm sorry if I offended you. And I said, you offended me because you were being offensive. He's like, well, again, sorry, you're offended. And I said, you are forgiven for being offensive because that was offensive. And I had to hold myself back from calling him out as a racist, because that is a racist thing to say. It is racist for you to be the only white man in a room and you're standing over every other woman and person of color in that room and you're lecturing a Mexican woman on her language and you're wrong on top of that. And that was one of the first days where I was like, what the fuck am I doing up here? Yeah. I, I think what the great part is, you know, there's, there's this whole kind of typecast of the type of people that live out here, but you don't really see too much change to introduce more people you know um especially with these larger companies you know the amazons the facebook's whatever you want to call them the larger tech companies that uh preside here a lot of them use contractors and they use immigrate you know people that are immigrating over that are on work visas but how much of that culture is actually saying hey we value you we love the work that you're doing why don't you come over and stay here Zero. Or, hey, you know, there's this type of thing going on in this area. We'd love to support having you in there. How can we make it more inclusive or more diverse for you? And a lot of companies don't get that right. You know, some that, do. That's the key there that you just hit on it, right? 
It's diversity and inclusion. That's what a lot of companies preach. But they stop after they bring their diversity higher and they forget how to be inclusive, right? They bring people like me who are happy and excited and we're, you know, willing to work harder than everyone else because we have to prove that our sacrifice is worth it, that we're going through this because we need to do better than our parents did and because we're performing for our community, right? I'm very well aware that if I fuck up, they're not going to give another brown woman a chance as easily, right? Mm -hmm. I don't have the luxury of being mediocre. But having me here and pointing to the token Latina or the token Black person or the token Indian, and they think that they have diversity at an aggregate level, but where is the inclusion? There is no inclusion when you have Black History Month not even acknowledged, right? When you have people that consider Cinco de Mayo Mexican Independence Day and they're all about tacos and tequila, but then they still voted for Trump, right? Like that's not fostering an inclusive culture, So right? here's, here's a question. Uh, you know, you kind of spoke about, let's say there's this manager and their team is, is, is diverse. You know, they have Indians, they have immigrants, they have people of color, black people, brown people, whatever the question is, you know, and to them, that's like, oh, well, I'm diverse. I hire diversely. What can companies be doing? And, you know, I just kind of want to hear more of your personal opinion, not a professional one. But what can companies be doing to treat us and make us feel like it's not just a number game or it's not just so they can put in their earnings report. We've hired X amount of people, so we're diverse. And what I'm seeing a lot is now with, with the political climate, you know, the senseless murders over and over and over again and all the things that are happening is more and more companies are standing up and saying, hey, we want to be diverse. We want to be inclusive. That's why we're going to hire 10 black people. You know, what can companies be doing where it's like, hey, we need to change. We acknowledge that we need to change. And that's why this person is right for the job versus saying, I need to go hire 15 Latinos. If companies are serious about diversity and inclusion, then their leadership board needs to reflect it. I will never believe that a company is diverse, that they are inclusive, that they are representative of the majority of the demographic, unless they have women, trans people, gay people, immigrant, black and brown folks on their leadership boards, because change starts at the top. And I think that it is, we are done settling for being the token brown or the token black person or the token Asian person on a team. No, I am very clear about my vision. I am on a director path. I want to be a VP and I'm very big on lifting as I climb. I need to make sure that I build a network of diverse and inclusive folks that can help sort of spider web that out and influence others because that's where it starts. The power starts in numbers, right? So if companies want to help, the very first thing that they can do is they can promote more people of color, more trans people, more folks in the LGBTQ spectrum, more, you know, black and brown folks focused on, you know, in, like the groups that are underrepresented, put those on your leadership board and watch how fast shit changes. Because I know that when I first came to headquarters and I saw another brown person and I saw another, you know, 
black person or someone that just I knew wasn't part of the norm, I made the effort to connect with that person and let them know how shit works around here so that they it's didn't like stumble. You see each other and you're like, holy shit, there, there's another person. Mm-hmm. And I think what companies need to understand too is we talk to each other. You know, when, you know, not that I, you know, personally, I'm, I'm glad, you know, I'm happy with the company that I'm in and everything like that. But if I was ever at a point where I was unhappy, I'd reach out to my friends of color and I'd ask them very straightforward. How do they treat Latinos? You know, are you treated kind of as this token black guy? You know, what's going on there? What are they doing for diversity and inclusion? And I think when we're younger, we don't really think about that because, again, the way we're raised is go get a job, finish school, provide for your family, get married, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, there's these milestones that, you know, Latinos see as perfect so they can just talk about you and say oh my son or my daughter is you doing abc and they got their shit together and that's why i sacrificed and put this family on my back washing dishes and cleaning floors for 20 years you know and i think companies need to realize that the more open we are about diversity and inclusion the more smart we're getting to this shit you know, it's it's more value that we're now bringing to the table and we can walk away from certain things because we know that's not the right space for us. If you can't tell me what your company is doing to promote diversity and inclusion, I don't want to work there. There's a million other jobs. You know, unfortunately, right now there's not a bunch of people are getting laid off and unemployment is, you know, tanking. Um, but again, that's a conversation for another day. But yeah. in, in, in a regular world, in a normal world, you know, it's we're starting to value ourselves a lot more, and we're we're recognizing the statistics of Latinas that only four percent have masters, and you know, underrepresented in graduate programs and in universities and scholarships, and we're starting to realize why not me, right? One hundred percent. Then why not me, right? I love it. Um, I have and, chills, and I, I think that's that's why I kind of wanted to start things like this and speak to people of color primarily. Um, and it's not about having your own business or, you know, making X amount of dollars. My goal isn't that at all. It's to highlight the fact that there are a lot of us that are doing the damn thing. We're doing what our parents wanted us to do in ways that they couldn't imagine. You 100%. We have the power to not settle right? Our parents came and they took the best job that they could get based on their immigration status, their understanding of the language. Uh, My dad has been at his job for 25 plus years and it is a great gig. It's union. He's been able to push his family forward and he has a third grade education and he was an orphan, right? And the one thing that my dad would always tell me early in my career is, Miha, make money for the boss. Don't make any trouble. Make money for the boss. Mm-hmm. And somewhere down the line, I started thinking like, I, I could be the fucking boss, right? Yep. Like I could be doing what they're doing. I know what I bring to the table. And that's one thing that I think my parents struggled with as I switched jobs because my mom was with her company. She retired from it. Same company, first job that she had in the United States. That's where she retired. My dad is still working and not the same company, but he's been, like I said, 25 to 30 years at the same company. And in 10 years that I had been working, I'd already cycled through five or six different companies until I found my space. And I felt found where I felt 
comfortable and where I could carve out a space for myself and build a brand and build a reputation and build a network big enough and powerful enough to really influence and put myself in a situation where I can help others. Because to me, I'm, I'm the type of person that if I'm eating, I want my whole crew to eat. There is room mm-hmm. at the table for all of us. That's, that's our culture. You know, we don't, we don't leave people behind, you know, and it, it speaks volumes to everything that we do. You know, it's just how we're raised. You know, a lot of us growing up, we have to take care of each other, watch our siblings. You know, my brother, who's a few years older than me, he was watching me since he was like 12. And now as we're, you know, getting into our, our, our older selves and he's more established in his career, I talk to him more now than I ever thought possible you know imagine and he's always pushing me he's like hey you can do this we have to do this for mom and dad you know both of my parents have passed away but my dad didn't graduate high school my mom didn't graduate high school you know my mom grew up in dominican republic and in a pueblo that's nowhere near all the resorts and the beauty and everything like that you know my father cut grass for a living and he collected social security but none of that ever affected me because growing up, they did what they had to do to provide for us. And now it's my turn and I have my daughter. I get to mold her and, and mold my family for generations to come on the possibilities are endless. It's no longer, hey, you have to get a trade and you got to do A, B, and C. It's, hey, go change the fucking world if you want to. If you don't want to and you want to work for the boss for 25 years, set your family up. Yeah, and I think that, that is, that's the difference with people of color and particularly the immigrant experience, I would say, is my hustle, my drive, my passion. It's more than just me. I do it for my mom. I do it for my dad. I do it so that my brother's kids, I can contribute to their college education. They're not going to, they're not going to work and go to school. They're going to just focus on getting their degree. And I'm going to help make sure that we do that right? Like it's my drive is more than just me. The money is good. I like it. I'm not going to lie. I mean, who's going to, you know, who's going (laughs) to complain about that, but it's not just for me. It's for my family. Like I keep telling my mama, I'm going to buy you a house, a really nice house. And mind you, my parents are homeowners, but it's all about me wanting to prove to them that us crossing the border was worth it that them giving everything up was worth it. And my parents struggled to understand why I needed to leave Los Angeles and come to Seattle and be in a different space. My dad recently said, you know, I wish that I had more money to give you so that you never would have left. Wow. And that was, it was heartbreaking because I didn't want it to be lost that it, wasn't about the money. I truly believe that the work that I do is important. I truly believe that I am doing work that impacts people that I care about. I work in in uh, the retail tool space, right? And I came from the retail store. So everything that I do is with the people that are in the front line in mind and making their job easier. That's where my brother works. That's where my best friend works. Like I do it for them. You know what I mean? And not just that, but I get to be in a role that not for nothing is considered upper middle class. 
right? Like there are certain roles like architect, lawyer, folks in the STEM and tech field that uh, empowers you to move up a rung in the social ladder. And I've managed to carve a space for myself there. And I know that there's not a lot of Latina immigrant women who, to be perfectly honest, a big portion of my career, Eric, I was undocumented. And I figured out a way to make it happen. And that's what I'm doing it for. Like, I'm doing it for my career. I'm doing it for the folks that are going to come behind me. I'm doing it for the folks that are growing with me as I'm growing my career. Those are some powerful words. You know, it, it, it takes a lot to kind of be brave and, and, and speak about it openly. And again, that's one thing that we're not necessarily raised with. You know, two, three generations back, nobody's thinking, hey, my great granddaughter is going to be, a, you know, a leader in technology. You know, it just it's just not thought of. And the fact that we uh, we're in this climate now where we can make real hardcore changes and we can set up our families and and we can do things that our families struggled and sacrificed for. And, you know, while they may not all be around to see it, you now have the wealth of knowledge and these tools to pass on and to influence nieces and nephews and friends and families and whatever little girl, you know, that's dreaming of getting to where they want to be you're a role model for them to let them know like, hey, I can do this. You can do this. If I did it, you can do it. You know, the world is a limit. And that's something that we, you know, as parents, as a parent myself, that's something, you know, you say to all your kids that you can do everything you want in the world, but it's a different uh, feeling when you know that you've achieved what was once thought of being impossible for you, no matter how small or insignificant it is. Because now you have that drive and that understanding of what it's like to struggle and overcome the struggle. So when your children go through that or when your family or your friends go through that, you're that subject matter expert to say, hey, let me tell you what I did, because if I could do it, you can definitely do it. Um, One thing that I did want to ask, because we're getting close to wrapping up with our time here, is uh, I wanted to make sure I I brought up the uh, fact of having a mentor. When I was uh, researching, you know, the definition and kind of the phenomenon of imposter syndrome, a lot of things that they said to kind of help combat it is you got to tell yourself no one's perfect. You have to have that support circle. Um, So I'm interested in hearing about, you know, if how strong is your support circle in carrying you through your journey? If you do have a mentor, if you have in the past, are they Latina? Are they a woman? And has that helped you or has that hurt you? So I think that anybody can be a mentor if you're paying attention. I have learned just as much from really good leaders as I have learned from really bad ones. I wish I could say that in my career, I've had a Latina mentor that has guided me, but that hasn't been the case because there aren't a lot of us at this level. And I think recently is when I really learned the power of building a valuable network and having someone to your point, look at you and say, no, you're not crazy. That's just the imposter syndrome talking. Keep it pushing. Let's keep going. Let's keep doing it. Right. And for a big portion of my career, because I was in male dominated spaces and I was this spicy Latina, I, I was my own mentor for a lot of it. And that meant being up late and reading product management books, reading management books, reading books about leadership, right? Like watching YouTube videos. Like a lot of it was me figuring out how to mentor myself 
and learning from the feedback and, and what I was hearing from folks around me and tailoring that and implementing what I felt was appropriate and rang true to me and my personality and discarding the rest, right? And eventually I did connect with some really wonderful white women that have shown me how to navigate corporate America in a different way. And there was even one, you know, senior director that our relationship was really rocky at first because he just saw me as the girl from the front line that was now up in tech trying to figure things out, you know, and I really had to make a decision to say, am I going to let this relationship turn sour and taint his perception of me and my perception of him? Or am I going to take ownership of this situation and advocate for myself. And that's what I did. I spent some time with him and I said, Hey, what do you know about me? What do you know about my background? And I was able to take him through my experience being a people leader of people leaders, right? My educational background, the fact that, yeah, I'm new in the tech space, but the competencies that I need to do my job well, I've had those, right? And once we had that turning point where he really felt like, okay, this girl is kind of on it. This girl is kind of on a good one. Um, that's when I really saw him start to invest in me and give me tactical feedback and give me tips and strategies that I could implement quickly that got me the desire that I needed to have. So I think mentorship is a two-way street, right? And I think there's probably more of an onus of you as the mentee to build a relationship, to seek a mentor, and to make the most of that interaction in order for it to benefit you. Good stuff. Good stuff. Um, I think with my final question, you know, we've been talking about imposter syndrome. We've covered a couple of, you know, different things. Uh, I've seen growing up in Latina families. Um, what would you say to someone that you know, is could be listening to this and maybe they're struggling in dealing with imposter syndrome and thinking, you know, they're at a pivotal point in their career. And, you know, am, am I really meant for this? Am I good for this? Is, is it really, you know, what I'm supposed to be doing? Or am I just listening to all the negative BS that's coming towards me and it's blocking me from actually shining the way that I'm supposed to, you know, what kind of advice would you give to those people? Yeah, I would say, why not try? What do you get out of not trying? Would you rather live with the what if? I was not sure that I wanted to pack up my whole life and move to this white ass state where I stick out like a sore thumb with my dark hair and my dark brows and my hoop earrings. And I am so glad that I did. What I have learned, the relationships that I have cultivated, the money that has come into my bank account, the people that I have been able to help also elevate into different roles within this space, I would not trade that for a million years. Even if my boss came in tomorrow and said, this has been great, but I think it's time to go our separate ways. Thank you very much for the opportunity. And I will take what I learned and I will take it to the next company and I will be even better because I'll have the background and the experience and I'll know what not to do or I'll know what to do better. And the only thing that I would say to other folks is if I could do it, 
why not you? Why can't you? Perfect. Awesome. So, Teresa, once again, I really appreciate you having some time. You know, hopefully we had some good dialogue. Um, and to anyone listening out there, you know, this is it. This is a story of a proud, strong Latina doing what she needs to do best. So I really appreciate that.